All right, James chapter 3. James chapter 3, we're continuing on. It may seem to you that James is, I wouldn't say redundant, but boy, is he going on and on and on about the tongue. Well, I'm sure that he has his reasons, and the Holy Spirit has done this for a reason, to give us all this teaching as it relates to the tongue. So if you can open up to James 3, I'm going to read 7 and 8, and you can follow along with me for James 3, 7 and 8. For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words in Scripture. Help us to apply it to ourselves and to consider the danger associated with our tongues. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was younger and I was into sports, the announcers would say when some great player was coming to town, you know you can't stop him. You can only hope to contain him. And if that was Michael Jordan or a little later on Kobe Bryant, that was what they said because they're, they're going to do what they're going to do. You cannot stop them. You have to respect the danger that they face. That rather crude expression gives us insight into the task before us, taming the untamable, controlling the uncontrollable, the tongue. Our last lesson was on Sunday morning, a message I called Tongue Arson, where fire warns us of the damaging effect of the tongue, the damaging effect it can have over the course of our whole life. Our reality is a product of our tongue. And you might say, I don't like that fact. I don't like it either. I don't like that my reality is often set by what I've said. We said in that that the same flame that heats the soup can burn the whole apartment building down. That's the danger associated with the tongue. So whatever we might build in our life with our labor, James wants us to know can be reduced to a pile of molten ash and charred rubble. We worked so hard to build something to think that you could then burn it down, and it started with just a spark from your tongue. That's how dangerous the tongue is. James wants you to get this. It's dangerous. In fact, it would be nice if your tongue came with a warning label. You know, we have to deal with all these warning labels in California, Proposition 65. <laughs> it would be nice to have it, and have it in different languages, maybe. You know, danger, exclamation point, Achtung, you know, if you speak German. I mean, caliente, I guess that's hot. Um, but danger, tongue is dangerous. It's a dangerous thing. That's why the fire um, lesson Applies, But today's lesson is going to approach the problem from a different, or you might even say an opposite, vantage point. 
See, James presents a greater to lesser argument today. The tongue was a lesser to greater. So let, let me set that up. Okay, so the tongue, what James is saying is the tongue's a little thing, very, very little in terms of the members of your body, in terms of strength, in terms of anything you compare it, like you compare it to the eye, it's much less complex. Compare it to your muscles, very weak, very, very small, but so is fire. Very, very small. That's why I say don't play with matches. Very, very small. Yet, what great, how great a matter, James says, a little fire kindleth. So though it's small, don't take it for granted. Don't be fooled. It can ruin everything. Now, this lesson, the lesson you could say of the tongue, you could, I know in our PE class we call the, the, the tough performers the beast. The tongue can be a beast. That's the lesson that we're in right now, the beast of a tongue. Watch out. And the argument here is a greater to lesser argument in saying that look at what man has been able to do in subduing the animal kingdom. Great beasts of nature have been tamed by man for man's benefit and pleasure. Therefore, the tongue should be able to be trained and tamed. But the argument breaks down. Because even though we have been able to subdue, train, break uh, animals like a horse and bring them under our control for our use and benefit, James has said no man yet has been able to do that with the tongue. So you think, when I was in India, I uh, went out on the, the street outside of the, the mall, and there was an elephant there. And it said, ride, you know, so many dollars to ride the elephant. I did not do that, but that's a great beast brought under the control of a man for the purpose and benefit of man. The tongue is much smaller than an elephant. It's, it's, it's much smaller than um, any of these uh, beasts that you might think that have been employed for man's benefit, but yet man has yet to be able to subdue it and to bring it under his control. So it's so great, these animals, we ought not to then think or take for granted or for a minute think, oh, yeah, I can, I can handle my tongue. No, you have to view your tongue differently. And that's what we're going to go to. So let's uh, follow James' thinking here in this lesson. He says it this way. Starting in verse 7, For every kind of beasts and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed and hath been tamed of mankind. Now you might say, oh, oh, so James is using one of those nature lessons, right? Kind of like with fire. But, but actually, James is not using a nature lesson. James is teaching, a, he's teaching the Bible. He's actually giving us a Bible lesson here. And the Bible lesson comes from Genesis. So let's go back to Genesis, Genesis 1.26. James is thinking biblically, not like a natural uh, 
zoologist, although I'm sure it's a great example, but he's actually going back to the beginning. And these lessons that James unfolds for us are many and rich and wealthy, but James is repeating to us something from Genesis 1:26. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So James is echoing that language. He's thinking about this biblically, and he's saying that man, God's divine will and purpose for man was to subdue and have dominion over the animal kingdom. Man is meant to rule. He is intended to rule. He's designed to rule. He's purposed by God. It's God's will for him to rule and have dominion. So James is entering into this discussion about the tongue from the perspective that this is actually something man was meant to rule, meant to have dominion, meant to subdue. And God made some big creatures, a lot bigger than us. And yet, it was his will for us to subdue and have dominion. And, and, to, and so dominion does not mean dominate, all right, to cruelly dominate animals. It means rather um, to, use, to be a steward, that God has made these creatures for our help, our aid, our benefit, our pleasure, to serve man, even as man cares for the beast. Man cares for the beast. The beast was created to serve, benefit, aid, and help man. This was a relationship that God made. And man is made to rule. That's the whole premise of these two verses. Man who was made to rule has successfully, even with the fall, done this with the animal kingdom. Now, James carefully divides the animal kingdom into four parts, the same four parts as Genesis does. This is the customary biblical division of animals. The animal kingdom, which any, every kingdom implies there needs to be a king, <laughs> okay? So when we say the animal kingdom, we're actually using biblical worldview. And the kingdom has to have a king. In fact, it has a king and a queen because he made a man and woman, and he said, unto the man and to the woman to subdue and have dominion. All right, so we're meant to rule man and woman over the animal kingdom. So the, the, the four-fold division are fish of the sea, fowls of the air, cattle or large land animals, and then everything else. <laughs> the creepy things, the creepy, crawly, creeping things. The word in Hebrew means swarming, the swarming creatures. And, and this is the biblical division of the animal kingdom. This is how creator God classifies his creatures in the animal kingdom. This fourfold division, and James sticks with it. He, he classifies, you see, God's looking at it from the perspective of ruling over it. And so he's saying, from a ruling perspective, man You've got, if you will, four domains over which to rule. The air and the beasts that occupy that. The sea, the beasts that occupy that. The land and the beasts that occupy that. And then the other, 
the you know insects and the creeping things, which could have been even included vermin and, and small, even aquatic creatures. Now, that's God's view. You say, well, that's not what I learned in school. Well, science often does its own thing. But God is saying man is supposed to rule in each realm. And the animals are classified by the realm in which they are in, which man is to rule over the animals of that realm. Notice two things before we move on. Man is not part of the animal kingdom. Okay, so that if you were taught that in school, that's false. Man is not a part of the animal kingdom. He is meant to rule over it. He's got special creation. You say, well, we have a heart, we have blood, we have lungs. Yeah, it's, God used certain, um, he reused certain designs, but that doesn't mean that we're animals. This is a false view that's perpetrated in the public schools. If, and, and, and if we give in to it, we don't see God's design to put man over the realm of the animal kingdom, all four realms, separate. He's got to be separate from it to rule over it. So man has enough similarity to rule over the animals, but he's completely different. Reducing us to an animal, this is the way Satan works. This is the way the world works. Considering man as an animal reduces him to something that acts on impulse and instinct. And that's what the schools will tell you. Not ours, but, well, they can't help themselves. They have instinct. They have impulse. And they're just acting off of that. Like a dog, like Pavlov's dog. But that's not befitting our capacity for thought and reasoning or our created purpose. We're that different. I mean, we're so different. Yes, you could say we're bipeds or whatever, but, but, but we're very different in our capacity and in our created purpose. But our government... The social programs that they design assume man is an animal and treat him as such. They lower him, they reduce him, and the behavior control methods that are employed by our pagan government don't work because they think we're animals. And so they want to maybe change our ecology or something, our environment, and, and think that was, that's going to improve things or... Um, you know, drug us or do different things like that, not understanding that the sources and causes of the bad behavior are sin, that we're slaves to sin. The Bible tells us this, not because of our animal instincts. Secondly, we ought to categorize things the way God does. Now, God is speaking, as I said, from the perspective of a ruling order. He's divided his kingdom, the animal kingdom, up into these four parts. Ruled according to their domain, fish in the sea, birds in the air, animals of the land, and then swarming kinds. Now, I know scientists classify by structure, but God classifies by ecology, by the realm in which they are. And you know what? Our classification system isn't perfect either, like the ostrich. <laughs> it's a bird. Well, yeah, but it doesn't fly. It lives on the land. <laughs> All right, so it, it just goes to show you that no man-made classification system works perfectly, but God's way of dividing it up so that they could rule is the description. And James pulls all this knowledge, all this custom of the Bible, all this imagery into his, his picture here. But before we move on, 
When men classify things, what we're seeing now is everything being reclassified. Gender's being reclassified. Okay? Love is being reclassified. Marriage is being reclassified. Behavior is reclassified. Calling sin a psychosis. Or slavery to sin is now called, it's addiction. But, but this is not what the Bible uses. We have to get back to speaking biblically about sin, slave to sin, Man, woman, male, female, made he them. Marriage, it's between a man and woman. It's for life, it's God's union. Not letting the world's classifications apply to us. And it's hard because it's all around us, especially if you work in the world and they're constantly reclassifying, reclassifying behavior. The big thing lately is to reclassify all felonies as misdemeanors. How's that working out? It's, it's leaving a mess. And now it's not a crime. You know, it's, um, so God has his own classification system, his own way of looking at things, and we ought to think, speak, and act biblically, saturating our mind in the Bible. So how do we do that? Well, you start in Genesis, and you end in Revelation. So in Genesis, you have the animal kingdom to be ruled by man. I'm sure the Garden of Eden was wonderful. And then you've got to follow it all the way to Revelation, and you're going to have, again, man ruling. But it's the second Adam. It's Jesus Christ ruling not only his people, the saints, and the earth and the realm, but the animals and all that go with it. You can read all those prophecies. So it's, it's meant to be a kingdom. It's meant to be ruled by man, and it's meant to be ruled by the man that God appoints, which is Jesus Christ. And that's what we look forward to, a ruled order. And that may, maybe gives you a hint to where the tongue might be able to be ruled. If it's in the kingdom of God. Ruled by God. Not man. All right, well, well let's look at some of the words here to, to understand. So we understand that, that these different classifications, he's painting a picture of the animal kingdom. And he's saying, is tamed, and that's perfect tense, you know, has been tamed, continues to be, and hath... Uh, been tamed is perfect, is tamed, present, present, perfect. And, and so there's, a, there's an idea that man, even at the time that James was alive, some 2,000 years ago, had already been able to subjugate the kinds. Now, that doesn't say, every, it doesn't say all animals, okay? But it, it's saying animals of each kind have been. And, if, you know, just a little bit of study to think about it. Now, the word tame does not mean domesticated, okay? It doesn't mean a pet. I mean, uh, that, that's, that's, the word tame here uh, means restrained, uh, subjugated, made to serve. Not cruelly, but with care and wisdom, you, you can have an animal to be a beast of burden, to follow your lead, to be useful for, for the production of goods, uh, of husbandry. Okay, that's what we're talking about here, not necessarily making them pets. This is the wisdom in the, that man has gained through experience to tame, has tamed, and continues to tame each member or taking select animals out of each kingdom. And if you can think about it, think about the land animals first. That's the most obvious one. The oxen, okay, the ox. Throughout the Bible and at the time of James, you have this tremendously powerful animal. It has shoot, you know, these big horns. It could kill you. But yet... Men uh, breed, 
train and feed these animals, care for them, and then they do massive amounts of work. They can help build things. They can help plow fields. They can be used for agriculture. They can be used for strength. So their, their great power unloads work off of us by training, like I said, breeding. We grow food for them. We care for them. We care for these oxen um, so that, and give them rest, as the Bible says. It talks all about how you, you ought to care for your beast, but that it can produce way more work than you can. And it brought into subjection. Fowls of the air. Historians like uh, Pliny the Elder tell us that carrier pigeons were used to send long-distance long messages during the time of Christ. Their uncanny homing ability helped them to always return to their nests, even from distances over 1,000 miles away. What an amazing creation of God. These are their doves, actually, and they were specially bred and trained over man-gained experience over time and how to utilize them. And so pre-telephone, pre-text message, okay, they would take a little message and tie it to the ankle of one of these birds, and they would send it. And these birds could fly upwards of 60 miles an hour. So this was fast and brought this message through the air. And they were reliable. And that's what it's talking about, having subdued, trained these animals, is that they were rely- you could rely on them, so much so that militaries continued to use these animals into the 19th century to relay messages. They were so reliable. That's what it means to train, to subjugate, to tame. Furthermore, I'm not sure what they were doing at the time with, with fish of the sea, but just doing some reading, dolphins have been employed as late as the Cold War by the United States and the Soviet Union. The United States in San Diego trains dolphins to sweep for suspicious objects, to find submarines, and the USSR has been thought to have trained them to plant explosives. Dolphins. And then you can think about the swarming animals by the millions, uh, like a beekeeper. Now, I wouldn't go into that, but my brother did it for a while, and you just think about millions of bees going in there with the smoke and the thing, and they understand how these animals are and how that they can get a honey from them and subjugate them to serve our purposes so that, you know, you can have chapstick with honey in it. And you can, you can buy all those things that are healthy that have honey in it. And not only that, but here in California, they import them to come in to pollinate the trees, the, the, the almond trees and all that. There's not enough bees, so beekeepers bring them, and they produce more in their orchards because they have more bees. These have all been used and subjugated by man for our benefit and pleasure. So James is saying, how ironic that all the wisdom and experience that has benefited us in husbandry has not enabled us to train or employ our tongues for the benefit of ourselves and others. It yet remains unruly, untrainable, uncontrollable, and poses a great danger to man. As far as the training, it kind of reminds me, I remember my, early on in our marriage, my wife worked with special needs children, and she would come home at night and be so frustrated sometimes and say, you have to train them every day. It's like 
they, they forgot everything you trained them. If, if, if they go away for a week, they forgot everything. It's like every day they need to be retrained because they're not, they're not retaining that information. And just imagine, you know, your dog, you train it to be housebroken, but what if you had to train it every day? That's more alike or akin to what your tongue is. Your tongue doesn't retain. It, it, it needs. You say, well, I learned something with my tongue 10 years ago, and it's, yeah, but it's not going to work. You're, it's every day, every day it's a problem. It's always going to be, you're not going to train it, and then it's done. It's, gonna, it's a continuing, as it says here, as we move forward, verse 8, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. So now he gives us two more examples. And they're also, they, they both of them have um, animal uh, qualities. The first is this um, unruly. The word unruly here has as a picture or has been used in history as a picture of a caged animal pacing back and forth. That's the idea or the concept of the unruly, an unruly animal. So if you want to get in your mind, what, like, what is James talking about? So we've talked about you know, the carrier pigeons, the dolphins, the oxen, the bees, all been subjugated for our purposes, our use, our benefit. Now imagine a rhinoceros, okay? And it's, it's, it's in that one of those, you're at the zoo, and there's like this flimsy little fence. And it's running and bumping into it. What are you going to do? <laughs> like, okay, I'm leaving. <laughs> yeah, this is a massive beast. It's full of anger. It's not smart. And the only thing between me and it are, is this little cage. Now you're picturing the tongue. It's a rhinoceros. It's not something that plows for you. It's not something that's able to be... Uh, uh, employed for man. It's a dangerous animal. And you better make sure you have a steel cage. You better make sure it's double reinforced. And maybe you've gone to the zoo and you one of those people that teases the animals. You don't want to tease a rhinoceros. You know, you go there, the gorillas, and you start teasing. All of you ever have a gorilla all of a sudden like turn and look at you or, or respond? You're thinking, wow, that, that glass, glad that glass is thick because that's a wild animal. And there's evil beasts. So that, that, this is what James is talking about now, is the, is the beasts in the animal kingdom that are evil beasts, that we ought to we, be fearful of, that an animal that's caged because it's dangerous. It's snorting, snapping, snarling. It's scary. That's the tongue. That's what James is getting at. Now, he then moves on to an even scarier example, and that's of a poisonous animal. He talks about that next, full of deadly poison. So now you picture a scorpion. You picture that animal that's creeping and that um, you don't even know it's there until it stings you. And it's full of this horrible, lethal poison. You say, well, that's a, scary, that's a scary thought, an animal that has lethal poison, whether it's a cobra or a rattlesnake or a scorpion. These are the things that scare us. This is the things in Australia, right? 
I mean, that, th there's things that can kill you all around. And, you know, my wife thought when she was young she wanted to go to, she wanted to be a missionary. She had it in her mind of Australia, but everything can kill you. Small, and there's around every corner there's these creatures that are very dangerous because they're poisonous. So now James is not painting a picture of animals that are under husbandry and helpful, but of those, those animals that nobody should have a pet scorpion. This is something that can kill you. It can sting you. It can, it can fill, it can discharge its poison, and they're generally not very controlled, these kinds of animals. And just like the tongue, they do it when they feel threatened. And you know that's how your tongue is. When you feel threatened, you think the scorpion or the rattlesnake, we know they're not in, that intelligent. We know that it's simply a reflex. It's simply like, you stepped here, and they react. They sting. They bite, and you know that's how your tongue is. There's not much. Sometimes you feel threatened. You feel cornered. And so, and you don't realize that you have these ducks back here full of poison. But the Bible is telling you, you actually have all those poison ducks right here, right at the ready. In fact, Paul talks about it in Romans 3. When he's talking about in the middle of salvation and righteousness of God, he speaks to what the natural man is, to what, the, what we are naturally. And it's a really ugly picture. We all know Romans 3.23 resides in here about our sin, but he paints quite an ugly picture. He says in verse 12, they are gone, all gone, out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. That's not a pretty picture. That's saying that our mouths are full of wickedness. It's saying that, that under, and then when we open them, there's the capability or the possibility that out can come this lethal Poison. And we know the tongue kills things. You know, it's funny. When you think about uh, the, the dangerous uh, members, uh, you know, of, of animals, you think about sharp things, right? You think about, oh, I don't want to get stung by the, the scorpion because it's sharp. The tongue doesn't kind of look like a sharp horn like the rhinoceros. It doesn't really look like a stinger like on a bee. It looks... It's kind of like just a wagging red piece of flesh. But the Bible is trying to get you to understand that it's deadly. It's actually deadly, especially when you're threatened, especially when you're cornered. And it's sharp. That's what I'm saying. It's sharp. Your tongue is sharp. You don't realize how sharp your tongue is sometimes until too late. It's too late. And the barbs come out. And, and, the, and, the, and the sharpness comes out. And then after you do it, you regret it. And you think, oh, man, why? Why did I do that? Why did I, why did I snap? Why did I pick? 
Why did I, why did I spew? <laughs> why did I spray that? The tongue kills reputations, kills friendships, kills ministries. It kills anything that threatens it. And this is the picture that God wants us to have. This is danger, danger. Your tongue is a great danger. Poison of gossips and slanders, backbiting, open sepulcher. That's our natural mouth. It's not a pleasant thing. However, the good news is that Jesus succeeded where Adam failed. And Jesus lived a life where his tongue spoke nothing but good things. That his tongue was always used for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. And so the key is is that man, yes, cannot subjugate, but God can. God can subjugate the tongue. You cannot. You can't do it. There's, there's not, it's not like you can send it to obedience school. I'm going to take my tongue, I'm going to send it you know, to obedience school, or, or I'm going to break it like, like a horse. Like I'll, I'll get it under control, and like one day that horse's will will finally break, and then it'll be mine. That's not the way the tongue is. You have to give it to God every single day, and sometimes more than once in a given day. You have to give your tongue over to God and say, I can't control this. You, please help me. Let the words of my, my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing. I have to give it over to God because I, I'm living in a, in a fantasy world if I think I can control it. If I think that I'm spiritual enough, if I think that I, because I know the Bible or because I've been saved, that it says no man. And then in another place in James, it says a perfect man. A perfect man, which none of us are. So we have to be realistic about this, that we have this rhinoceros in our mouth. We have this scorpion. And the only way it's going to be subdued or subjugated is if it comes into the kingdom of God, is if it's under the reign and rule of God. It's a loathsome thing, dangerous. But when employed for God, you know, I was thinking like, what kind of a creature? It's like trying to train a jellyfish, you know? I mean, you ever see those, like, jellyfish, you're, you're, it just stings. That's all it knows to do, sting, right? You, you, point, you ever watch those things on the jellyfish? They're so beautiful. They're, like, rising up and point, and then it, it, it's lethal. And, and there's no, nothing to train it. It's only controllable by God. So the answer is not to lock our tongue in a cage and throw away the key, but rather to put a door and give the key to God. <laughs> give the key to God. You say, well, how can you do that? How can you do that? Well, let's look at one verse before we close, a series of verses in Proverbs in 16. I was like, but how could I do that?
Let's look at verse 23. The heart of the wise teacheth his mouth and addeth learning to his lips. Pleasant words are as in the honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones. So if the tongue can spew poison, and that's the natural state of it, the tongue under the control of God can spread medicine, can have a medicinal value. Your tongue could actually, even as it says here in verse 24, health. So, so under the control of God, under the control of God's wisdom, our tongue can make and bring health to other people. But then again, how? How do you do it? Well, back up to verse 23. The heart of the wise teacheth his mouth. Okay, teacheth. How, how do we do that? Through the Bible. Well, how do we do that? If you read the Bible, think about the Bible, memorize the Bible, and before you speak, think, how can I say Bible? How do I speak Bible? Do you realize that we have a lot of things that we can say? There's, there's a Bible verse to fit every single situation. And if we are filling our mind, if we're teach, how are we going to teach our mouth? We're going to learn the Bible. And we're going to learn verses. And then those verses, when they're in our mind and, we're, and they're coursing through our mind, it's not poison, but it's rather health. And then we have a healthy mind, and we're thinking Bible, 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 Bible. And before we go to say something, we say, how about I, how about I just say a verse? Even if I... Don't get the words perfect. I could say something that comes from the Bible. And in this situation, that'd probably be the best thing to say. And that would save a lot of trouble if we can just learn. But it takes, you have to teach yourself the Bible in order to think the Bible. You see, you get in trouble when you teach your mind and you watch filthy things and then cursing words come into your mind and all these bad things are in your mind and then those are popping around in there. But if you do the opposite of that and you think about the Bible all the time, you read the Bible and you hide the Bible in your heart, then you're thinking of the Bible. So when you're in that situation, you're about ready like, great peace have they that love thy law, nothing shall offend them. I can always say that. Great peace have they that love thy law, nothing shall offend them. You can, there's a verse that fits the situation. You just have to start combing through that database in your mind of verses that you've taught your mouth. And then when you go to say something, you're never going to go wrong. If you say something from the Bible, pertaining to the Bible, about the Bible, you have a wonderful reserve of good, pleasant, true, comfortable words to speak. And you can know it's not of you. It's not of you. It's something from God. Some might say, cat got your tongue? (laughs) The real question is, does God have your tongue? Does God have your tongue? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in the word and this lesson.